It would be true to say that all of the Bible is important, crucial for life. There are, of course, some places in the Bible, some passages that are clearer than others. The New Testament certainly carries a greater weight with us because Revelation is progressive. We know more now because of the completion of the New Testament than we would have known before it was written. But there are also just passages that are just absolutely vital to understanding who we are as God's people. Romans chapter 6 is one of those. It is vital to the Christian life because the Christian life is one of war against the power and the presence of sin. See, someone who's not a Christian lives under the dominion of sin without realizing it. They are unaware of their condition and often even reject the idea that they are sinful, quote-unquote. That sin is just a, a fancy word that somebody made up to make you feel guilty. Most people acknowledge that there is right and wrong. And when pressed, I've never heard anybody say, no, I've never done anything wrong. They won't use the word sin most of the time. They'll use a word like mistake. I, I make mistakes. But in the end, someone who is not a Christian is blind to their condition and to the consequences of sin. And God's wrath is treated by our culture as a mythology, something that was, has been created and made up to bring people into line to try to to make people do things, to make pe force people into giving money and supporting and whatever it might be. In Romans chapters 1 through 3, the human race is exposed in rebellion against God. And Romans chapters 1 through 3 reveals that God's wrath is being revealed, that it is coming. And that all of humanity comes under God's wrath. Romans chapters 3 and 4 reveal how God has provided righteousness for people who will believe, who will trust Him. Justification God has provided by faith alone in Christ alone. So those who are sinners, those who live in rebellion against God, can be made right with God, can be brought into a right relationship with Him and stand before the judge of the universe declared just, declared righteous. For the person who believes and is now justified before God, there are abundant blessings which Paul unfolds in Romans chapter 5. Most importantly, that we hope in the glory of of God. That is, we have an assurance of the glory of God. This is the focus of chapters 5 through 8. But the inevitable question that has to be answered is, well, if this is true, if we have the forgiveness of our sins, if we have redemption from the penalty of sin, if we are no longer under God's wrath before, because we stand before Him justified... And if grace abounds where sin is, then what are we supposed to do 
with the power and the presence of sin right now? Will it just go away? Will we cease to struggle? Can we be perfect in this life? Can we reach a state of sinlessness because we have been justified before God? There are some who teach that, by the way, that if you continue to progress, you can actually get to a state of sinlessness as a Christian. Should we shrug our shoulders and say, well, if that's the way it is, then I'm a Christian, I'm justified, but I'm also still a sinner, oh well. Today we continue in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, where Paul emphatically declares, by no means are we to continue in sin. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his." We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness." For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Lord, we come now to drink from the fountain of life, to renew our minds with truth. Your word is truth. Give us ears to hear and open the eyes of our hearts to be behold wonderful things in these verses. Amen. We have died to sin. Our relationship to sin has been severed for good. As a Christian, you have been transferred into a new kingdom, out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son, whom the Father dearly loves. You are a new creation. The power of sin over your life is broken. This is true even if you don't feel like it. Even if you still struggle with temptation and stumble and fall into sin, the power of sin, its authority, its dominion over you has been broken. 
And last time, we looked at Paul's first point in explaining how it is that sin, the power of sin has been broken in verses 3 through 5. The power of sin is broken by your union with Christ. Your union with Christ. When you believed the gospel and received the free gift of righteousness, you were made one with Christ in such a way that you were united with him in a death like his and united with him in a resurrection like his. This union with Christ is the key to victory over sin now, in the present. We have been freed from the penalty of sin. We will be one day freed from the presence of sin when we see Jesus in his glory and he changes us completely. But the key from day to day, now, in the grit of life, the key to knowing victory over the power of sin is that you are one with Christ. You are one with him. Now, Paul now develops this truth with a second point. The power of sin is broken by your union with Christ, and the power of sin is broken by Christ's accomplished work. This is verses 6 through 10. The power of sin is broken by Christ's accomplished work. In verses 6 through 10, Paul is elaborating on this being united with Christ in death. That's verses 6 through 7. And then this being united with him in resurrection, verses 8 through 10. And there is this certainty that Paul wants to emphasize. This certainty to our union with Christ. And because of this certainty, there is a confidence for living in victory over sin. Paul says, we know, verse 6. We believe, verse 8. And again in verse 9, we know. We know. We know. We believe. These truths are established because Jesus has accomplished our salvation. What is our certainty and confidence? Well, first of all, we know that our old self was crucified with him. We know that our old self was crucified with Christ. Now, the old self is not the old nature. Perhaps you've heard that. I certainly was taught that when I was growing up. When you become a Christian, you get a new nature, is how the, the teaching goes. You get a new nature, but the old nature is still around, causing you to sin. And so there is this conflict within you, because there is this conflict between the old nature and the new nature that you have now, because you've become a Christian, and this conflict with sin is this conflict between these two selves, these two natures. In fact, there's a common illustration that says the old self and the new self are like two dogs in a fight for control of your life. And the one that you feed is the one that will win. Now, there is some truth in that illustration that what we do with our lives, what we feed our minds and our hearts, where we direct our attention, is going to affect whether or not we have victory over sin or not. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But 
the problem is that the Bible doesn't teach addition. The Bible doesn't teach that you have this old self, this old nature, and the new self is now added, and these two are inside fighting. The Bible teaches transformation. Transformation. The old self is done away with, and the new self is newly created. Last time we looked at 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's not addition. That's transformation. The old is gone. The new has come. So while we do struggle with sin, what Paul will call the flesh in Romans chapter 7 Believers do not have two natures. You have one nature. You have the new self or the new man. The question, though, is, well, what is the old self then? If the old self is not this old nature that kind of hangs on and now we get a new nature and they duke it out for the direction of our life, what is the old self? Well, the old self is simply the person you were before you came to Christ, before you were justified, before you were saved, converted. Paul is actually taking us back to Romans chapter 5, where he contrasts Adam and Jesus. That in Adam, everyone has sinned and everyone is guilty and everybody faces death, but Christ Offer salvation. In Christ, we have new life. That's what he's talking about. Your old self is who you were in Adam, under the dominion of sin and death. Listen, that person, your old self, was crucified with Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, he accomplished your crucifixion. His death was complete, and so was yours in him. Paul applies the same truth to himself in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So the old self is crucified with Christ. The new self is powered by Christ's resurrection life. So we know, first of all, that our old self was crucified. We also know why. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, The body of sin is not talking about just our physical body, as if our physical body is inherently sinful, the body itself is not inherently sinful. It bears the effects of sin. But what Paul is talking about is our whole person that is either reigned over, ruled by sin, or ruled by righteousness. That is the body of sin. It is the body that used to live under the dominion of sin. That is to be done away with. That's why 
Christ was crucified and you were crucified with him. That was God's purpose to set us free from the enslavement to sin, to this bondage. This is another reason why Jesus' death was necessary. Think about this. We know that Jesus had to die so that our sins could be forgiven. There had to be a propitiation, and we talked about that word. It's a big Bible word, theology word, that simply means that God's wrath had to be taken by somebody, and Jesus took that wrath. He was a substitution, a sacrifice on the cross in my place and in your place. We know that he had to die so that a sin could be forgiven, so that we could be justified before God, made right with God. But think about this. His death was also necessary to provide death so that we could be set free from sin's power. That's the only way you and I could ever be set, from, uh, set free from sin's power. But instead of you going to the cross and dying in your sin, Jesus went and died, and then God put you in the grave on the cross first, and then in the grave with Jesus so that you could be set free. So Jesus not only died to bring us justification, Jesus died so that we could die in him so that we could be set free from the power of sin. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, Paul continues, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Okay? So if we have been united with him in his death, then it only follows that we will be united with him in his resurrection and will live in resurrection life with him. In other words, our union with Christ will be fully realized. It will be completed when we too are raised from the dead, defeating death to then live in glory. So in Jesus' death and resurrection, we died with him, that's in the past, and now that is applied to us. We are counted as someone who died the death of Jesus and was buried with him. It also is a promise that we will one day be raised with him. If we're one with him, then we're one with him. That means we also have to be raised. For us in time, that's in the future. But that reality now sets a reality for you as his child. Today, now, as you are tempted by sin. And because you and I know we are promised that we too will be raised from the dead and we already have the eternal life now that makes that certain, we can know. We can have victory over sin now. And we know this is certain because we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he now lives, he lives to God. 
So the power of sin is broken because Jesus broke the power of death. He will never die again. That's why the Bible talks about, 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus being the first fruits, the firstborn among the dead. Jesus was not the first person to come back from the dead. Jesus raised people from the dead. But every one of those people died again. Jesus will never die again. And his people, when they are raised to new life, will be raised like Jesus was raised, to never die again. And when it says here that he died to sin, he didn't die to sin like we have died to sin, but rather, Jesus, when he became a man, and when he went to the cross, and when he suffered death, and was buried, Jesus submitted himself under the rule of sin and death. In that way, Jesus also died to sin, just as you and I have died to sin. He led the way. He blazed the trail. But the life he lives now, he lives to God. So Jesus' victory over death establishes our victory over sin and someday death. Paul could have said this, will Jesus ever die again? By no means. How can he who is raised from the dead ever die again? Sound familiar? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It's the same truth. There is then this absoluteness to what Jesus has accomplished by being crucified and raised from the dead. Now, we call this our position in Christ, okay? This is a reality, this is a truth that is declared to us. This is not a command yet. These are things that God has done that Jesus has accomplished. This is why living the Christian life is not just a to-do list. It's not just a list of applications. Do this, do that, get blessed. It is, the Christian life is, actually and begins with, and is mostly understanding and believing in what Jesus has done, what Jesus has accomplished. That is the foundation. And it is, it is counter to everything we think of as human beings, which is our own achievement, which is what we've accomplished. The Christian life begins with what Jesus has accomplished, what he has done, Without that truth, there is no practice, there is no command, there is no imperative. Victory over sin, life transformation begins with what Christ has done. That's the starting point. If you find yourself struggling with sin, the starting point is, what has Jesus done? What has he accomplished? Only then can you move to the, what do I do now? Which is exactly what Paul does in verse 11. 
The power of sin is broken by your union with Christ. And the power of sin is broken by Christ's accomplished work, what he has done. In other words, if you are united with him, in what are you united with him that matters? His crucifixion and death and his resurrection. Thirdly, the power of sin is broken by your active resistance. Your active resistance. This is verses 11 through 14. Just as Christ lives to God, verse 10, we are called to now live to God. If, we've been, if Jesus was raised and he now lives to God, continuing to bring God glory, then we are now to, with our lives, live to God. There is a parallel between Jesus' life and death and how we are to see ourselves. Now that our position is established, there is an imperative. We are called to appropriate. We are called to apply what God has already declared he has done. We are bringing our practice into line with our position. And there are really three commands here. Let's look at the first one, verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The command here is consider, or regard, or if you're carrying the old King James Version, reckon. I like that one the best, actually. Reckon. Reckon yourselves dead to sin. It means to think of yourself decisively in this way. To consider, to reckon yourself dead to sin is an act of your will. Okay? This is not about how you feel. This is an act of your will to reckon yourself. It is a decision you make. It is to decisively adopt God's perspective of you as one with Christ as having died in Christ and having been raised to new life in Jesus. And here is the truth that ought to dominate our thinking. I am dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I am dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I am dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It reminds me, oddly, of Donnie Yen's character in the Star Wars Rogue One. You remember? He's the blind guy. Uh, he's not a Jedi, okay, but he's a guy. And he walks around, and you remember, his, he's got a mantra, right? I'm one with the force, and the force is with me. I'm one with the force, and the force is with me. I'm one with the force, and the force is with me. Okay, now that's a, a mindless, dead, uh, fantasy mantra, but, the, but it is an example of how we are to think always on this truth. I am dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I am dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And they cannot be empty words you walk around chanting like a mantra. But they are to be the meditation of your heart and mind. 
I am dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Every time you turn on the TV, every time you log on to your MacBook, every time that you sit down in front of your phone, Anytime you have a conversation with somebody, every time you walk through the mall, every time you go to the bank, I am dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Always. Let this be your self-image. Let this be your self-image. This is how God sees you. Why should you attempt to see yourself differently than God sees you? Whether that is lower or whether that is trying to build yourself up on a pedestal, either way. Let this be your self-image. I am dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Secondly, second command is found in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Sin is something that is looking to dominate you, to rule over you. That's how Paul talks about sin. He personifies it. Sin is an enemy that is looking to maintain dominion over your life, even though in Jesus you have already died and been raised to new life. It is trying to rule over you. And Paul is simply saying, don't give in. Don't be victimized. Don't shrug your shoulders or throw your hands up in the air or say it's too hard. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. And when he says again mortal body, he isn't just talking about the physical body. He's talking about your whole person and how you live life in this life. When you are changed, the promise of resurrection will no longer be a mortal body. It will be a glorified, resurrected body in a new new life. You are still now in the mortal body. You are still now in this age. That hasn't happened yet. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. This isn't the only place, of course, in the New Testament where we're told this. Another example would be the the letter to Titus, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. There it is captured in a different way, from a different angle. We are being trained the grace of God. Think about this. We think of the grace of God as God's love for us, his favor on us, even though, we're, even though we don't deserve it, we sin. God has, has just abundant grace. 
given us abundant grace. But grace trains us to renounce ungodliness, to defy it, to deny it access. And Paul says here in Romans 6, to not let sin reign in your mortal body. He is saying, renounce ungodliness. Renounce ungodliness. This is just simply an act of the will. It is setting the sails of your heart. It is setting your will against sin which seeks to dominate you. Thirdly, in verses 13, verse 13, we find this command. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but uh, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So there are two commands here, right? Do not present, but present, but it's really one command. It's not doing this, but doing this instead. And you notice that Paul has moved from you, you, your old self, has been crucified with Christ. And now he is saying, then he says the command um, to you, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. But now he gets more specific, members. So in other words, resist sin with your whole person, resist sin with every part of your being, but members here, again, is not just talking about the members of your body, like your limbs and your hands and your eyes and your ears. The members are talking about everything about your life, all of the various components. So your life as a whole, your person as a whole, and then everything that makes you up as a person. So it's talking about resources. It's talking about your money. It's talking about your station in life, your influence, your abilities, all of your assets, all of your faculties. All of those things are your members, and all of those things are no longer to be presented to sin. Instead, they are to be presented to God. They are to be presented as instruments, and this, this word can, be, uh, can mean tools, and it can mean weapons. So whether it's thinking of yourself as a, as a, as a hammer or a, a wrench, these are the things that you use to build life, or whether you think of them as weapons, a sword, a knife, a gun, Weapons, you are not to present all of these pieces of your life as weapons in the arsenal of sin under sin's dominion or tools. You are to present all of these things, all of your assets, all of your faculties, all of your abilities, all of your resources. You are to present all of these as tools and weapons to God as those who have been brought from death to life. If that's true, then all of you belongs to God. Every part of you. 
Not just your physical body, but everything that you own, everything that you do, every realm that you live in, every influence that you have, everything that you learn. All of it is now to be presented to God as tools or weapons for righteousness. Instead, present yourselves. And this goes with a promise. So Paul gives these commands then. This is our participation. This is our part. This is our active resistance. But he, but he has to follow it up with a promise in verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. That's a declarative statement. Sin will no longer have dominion over you. Again, that is your position. That is the ultimate reality. And God is saying, now, bring your practice into line with what I have already accomplished for you and in you. Bring it into line. Okay, so the power of sin is broken by your union with Christ, by Christ's accomplished work, and finally by your active resistance. So this is our position then, right? We have died to sin. We are raised to new life. God has accomplished these things all by his grace. But we are to cooperate. We are to participate by actively resisting. And there is no neutral ground between those two. You are either submitting to sin, presenting your body, your whole self, and all of your faculties to sin, or you are actively resisting it. That's what the Christian life is. There's no neutral ground. Let me just, in closing, let me suggest some ways to actively resist sin, okay? If we're called to do this, to consider ourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus if we are to then let sin not reign in our mortal bodies, if we are to present our members as instruments to God for righteousness, then what are some ways we can actively resist sin? Well, I'm going to go to fundamental number one, A, read your Bible. Okay? Read your Bible. Saturate yourselves with the truth. There is nothing that will change your heart and your mind like the scriptures. Everything begins there. And listen, go deep. Don't be satisfied with the inspirational poster Christian cliches. The one little verse snippet you might get on a daily calendar. Those might be encouragements if you're familiar with the scriptures, but those will not feed your soul, and they will not equip you to do battle with sin. You have to understand what God has revealed. You have to think God's thoughts after him. I am dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Read your Bible. Commit yourself to it. 
both reading in a breadth, if you're in like a, a year, Bible through the year reading plan, yes, but focus in depth. Read something. Study theology. You're all theologians. Don't say that's for the academics, that's for people who like to read. Get it on audiobook. Listen to it. Most Every book is almost on audio of some sort, in some format or another. Challenge yourselves. Go deep into the word. Saturate yourselves with it. Number two, set your first thought. Now, here's what I mean by that. The battle with sin is a daily fight, okay? And it begins the moment you wake up. So this is what I think of when I mean set your first thought. It's that the alarm just went off, and I'm about to get up, and I'm wrestling, and I'm trying to. Where does your mind go? Because at that moment, you have the opportunity to fill it with something. And if you are reading your Bible, you will have at your fingertips, at the front of your mind, the truth that ought to set your day in motion. That could be any number of truths. It might begin with preaching Romans chapter 6 to yourself, I am dead to sin, I am alive to God in Christ Jesus. But set your first thought and know, be aware, that first thought, as soon as you awake, can set the course for your day. It is the beginning point. Fill your mind immediately with truth. That might be a command. It might be a promise. It might be a declared statement from God. But set your first thought on God's grace to you and that you need it today. And the reality of how God sees you. I am dead to sin. I am alive to God in Christ Jesus. So read your Bible and set your first thought. And make that a habit. Okay, Make that a habit. Day in and day out. Thirdly, eliminate temptation. Eliminate temptation. Identify the places, sometimes the people, the entertainment that trips you up. The things that give sin power in your life to rule over you. Identify those things and eliminate them. This is not legalism. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings closely or entangles, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's what this is. Eliminate, eliminate temptation. Jesus said in Mark chapter 9, verses 43 through 47, a string of shocking commands. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, 
cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Jesus says this three times. And Jesus is not talking about physical mutilation. What he's saying is the drastic measures that are necessary to defeat sin, to resist sin, and the seriousness that sin, the seriousness of the consequences that sin brings in eternity. So it's better to, to go through life without a hand. It's better to go through life lamed without a foot. It's better to go without eyesight than it is to spend an eternity in hell. This also explains why there is so much flee language. That's F-L-E-E, not F-L-E-A. Okay? Why there's so much flee language in the New Testament. Let me give you some examples. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 10.14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 1 Timothy 6.11, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, steadfastness, gentleness. These things, by the way, in 1 Timothy chapter 6 are, number one, stirring up controversy, and number two, the love of money. Those are the these things in the context of 1 Timothy chapter 6. But you can see that we are to flee these things and pursue these things. There is both the negative the resistance, and there is the positive. There is the not presenting your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but instead presenting your members as instruments of righteousness to God. That's fleeing and pursuing. So we are to then eliminate temptation. We are to get rid of those things. Fourthly and lastly, join forces. Join forces. Or maybe in this, this context, maybe I should have said close ranks. Close ranks as the people of God. Think about this. If you're struggling with sin, so is everybody else. These things are true of all of us. And if you find yourself struggling with sin, know that your brothers and sisters in Christ are also struggling with sin. We're all in this fight together. We need to form a community of resistance in this sense, don't we? We need to close ranks. We need to join forces. That means if you're really going to win the fight against sin, you need each other. We need one another. There is another verse here that talks about fleeing and pursuing, 2 Timothy 2.22. I could have included it before, but he says something else here. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. How about that? So here again, we have this language. 
flee. Eliminate temptation. You are to leave these things behind, and you are to pursue these things, righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And he says here, you are to flee these things and pursue these things along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We're to flee and to pursue together as the people of God. And don't these things emphasize a couple of our core commitments here at Crossway Fellowship? We love others. We proclaim Christ. But here I see emphasized, obey the truth and walk together, right? We are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is true of each of us as a child of God, as an individual. And when we are gathered as a church, we together are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And this obey the truth is what Paul is getting at here by presenting your members as instruments of righteousness to God. We are new people. We have new life. And we are to obey the truth when we walk together. We're to do it together. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would encourage your people this morning to resist sin. To actively resist sin that seeks to rule over us that we would do so as individuals throughout our weeks, our day-to-day routines of life. Lord, that we would do so together as the people of God, as this local church, and that we would have the courage to confess sin, to repent of sin, to deal with sin openly. Lord, that we would lean on one another And that we would pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace together. That we would present ourselves, our members, as tools and weapons of righteousness to you. You have bought us. We belong entirely to you. We no longer belong to ourselves. The old self is gone. And the new self has come. You have given us life. Lord, may we worship in this way, and may you be pleased. In your name we pray, amen.